OCFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using GrowCFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the GrowCFO show. I've got a returning guest today, David B. Horn. And David, since we last spoke, has released a book called Funded Female Founders and has done some lovely work in setting up a fund to help those people. And it's a coincidence that we're recording this on International Women's Day. It would be nice if we'd actually published it today, but we've had two previous attempts to record this, both of which we had to postpone for for some very good business reasons. But hey-ho, at least we're recording on International Women's Day. David, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Kevin. It's great to be here. And uh, yeah, as it's International Women's Day, hashtag embrace equity. Yeah, so let's embrace some equity. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Or equality. David, so probably about 18 months since that first episode I recorded with you for the Grow CFO shows. What's going on in your life in that 18 months? Wow, 18 months, gosh, a lot. I mean, gone on in my life overall. Biggest personal news is that six months ago, I became a grandfather. Oh, congratulations. So daughter had a little boy called Ben. It's unquestionably the best thing personally. Professionally, it's been really busy. I've cured a couple of new clients. So I have a portfolio of clients. I've secured in the last 12 months, two substantial ones. One of my mentors refers to as oversubscribed, but doing some very, very interesting work with clients. And unfortunately, I'm under quite tight NDA, so I can't say much more than that. Oversubscribed, that sounds like Daniel Priestley to me. That's definitely Daniel Priestley. One of my heroes, read all his books, all great yeah. As you know, I'm CFO of, of Daniel Priestley's company as well. So, Which helps. And uh, Daniel's fault that you wrote the first book. <laughs> It's thanks to Daniel. It really is. Yeah. No, no. Did his KPI program. Gosh, it must be seven or eight years ago now. And it it took me three years to get on with writing the book. And writing a book is a game changer. And writing a second one is pretty cool, too. Absolutely. So that second book, that's mainly what we want to talk about. We we touched on it yes. the last time we spoke. Hell, tell me all about that second book. So the second book is called Funded Female Founders, How to Traverse the Uneven Playing Field and Secure Funding to Grow Your Business. My interest in this area goes back four years to an event where I was speaking about funding for SME businesses. And after my talk, a woman came up and asked me why so little funding went to female founders. And I said, I don't know, but I'll find out and been a life-changing question. For those who know me, they, they know the story. For those who don't, there probably isn't time in a podcast to give the whole story, but look me up on LinkedIn and YouTube and you can get it. Spoke with my publisher, agreed that there would be definitely a market for a book like this. And so I, I set out to write it. And it was the most fascinating experience because my first book I wrote, the writing took probably two months and then the editing and all of that took another three With this one, the writing and the research took just under two years. And and I'm ever so grateful to one woman in particular, a lady named Cindy Gallup, who wrote the foreword. I got introduced to her when I was about halfway through writing the first draft. And she just said to me, you're not thinking big enough. And that just kind of blew my mind apart. I went away and just kind of and thought about what she meant and did some more reading and did some more research. And and then came back and, and realized the book I'd initially been writing had been kind of 
you know how you read a book and it's like, well, here's my method and here's how you do it. And so come and engage me as a consultant and I'll implement it. And that's not what I wanted to achieve with this book. And so I just completely rethought it. So the book's written in three sections. Section one is called what it's really like out there. So it looks at the stats and stats are pretty bad. And then it tells the stories of seven female founders from companies in seven different industries in four countries and just telling about their journey as a female founder raising capital. And then I look into bias. And then the middle bit of the book is kind of the chunkiest. And that's really where I take people through the fundraising journey. What are the different types of funding? Do you really want to raise money? And then, you know, what's angel, what's VC, what's private equity, what's crowdfunding, et cetera, et cetera. And then kind of a final chapter on the pitching process and what should go into a pitch deck. And then the final section of the book is looking into the future. You know, what what do we need to do to make fundraising fair? And it looks at political, economic, and social change. So that was a longish answer to a short question. <laughs> yeah. Going into the first bit of that, David, you've looked at the stories of seven women, seven different industries in four different geographies. Correct. Does that mean that this is a universal problem wherever you look based on the uh, statistician would tell me i uh, know but based on what i have researched yes this is a universal problem there are one or two places where both of them happen to be south pacific island nations one is new zealand and the other one is not far from new zealand where in their aboriginal culture the women have all the power and control and everything and, and these people just couldn't believe it but apart from that yes based on what i've researched it's everywhere Okay. So to what extent is it more difficult for an all-female team to get funded than an all-male team? What's the magnitude of that difference, David? Well, I mean, the, that I always use, and this is based on research that's published by PitchBook, which is one of the largest and most reputable sources of this kind of information. They're a, they're a division of Morningstar, which is a huge global publishing outfit. And according to their stats, in 2022, in the UK and Europe, female founders submitted 5% of all pitch decks to venture capitalists and got less than 1% of funding. Mixed gender, I think they submitted 14% of decks and got 12% of funding. And so the men submitted like I can't remember. I, I haven't got the chart in front of me. Something in the yes. low 80, let's say 81% of decks yeah. and got 87% of funding. Hmm. So there's just skew. Yeah. And yeah, no one knows the real answer, but I'm aware of a lot of the contributing factors based on the research that I've been doing and the people I've been talking to. Quickly, contributing factors. Give me a list. Number one, inherent gender bias. Yeah. And my favorite bit of research backing this up was from Lego the little toy bricks people. And Lego did a research study across children in, I can't remember how many countries, but it was a wide study. And they looked at play behaviors of boys and girls from like six months until I think the age of six. And up until about the age of two, there's no inherent gender bias in the way they pick toys or look at or what they're interested in or anything like that. And then somewhere around the age two, two and a bit, all of a sudden the girls start migrating and playing with dolls and doing household things. And the boys are building trucks and fences and forts and 
Where's that coming from? That's got to be coming from the parents or it's a late release genetic thing that comes out when kids are two years old. I don't know. But it, I thought it was fascinating. That, that, one is, that one is particularly puzzling me at the moment. It's like, like you, I'm a relatively recent grandfather at the moment. Ah, congratulations. A third one on the way. Wonderful. Um, I don't know, somewhere down the road, there might be a granddaughter, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but the two that are around so far, the eldest will be three in about a month's time. And yeah. he is very definitely into playing with cars, trains, any form of transport. I don't think anybody has particularly pushed him that way. And he's, for the Christmas before his second birthday, he was he received bin lorries and all of that sort of thing because he was fascinated by them. Up at the window, watching them, whatever. Very much transport-type toys. But I don't mm. think that's come from anywhere other than him showing an interest in them and wanting more. Maybe, yeah. Who knows? Um, I don't I'm know. A similar thing with second grandson, who is two and a bit. And for as long as I can remember, well before he was two, obsessed by tractors. Okay, well. Yeah. So I don't know. I really don't know if this is a genetic inherent thing or it's a parent push thing. Because I'm not seeing yeah. that much parent pushing going on. A lot more of child getting interested things coming yeah. along. So yeah. Yeah. I think what will be interesting, if by any chance a granddaughter does come along, see what happens there. Yes. Especially since whichever side the family a granddaughter would come into, there will naturally be a whole load of existing toys that were all driven by the boy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that interesting one. So yeah. That's just one reason. The second reason is inherent gender bias, but I'll give a different example, not of children, but of pitching competitions. So this was research done by a, a woman named Dr. Dana Kanza. She is an assistant professor at the London Business School, and she did her PhD research at Columbia University in New York. And for her thesis, she analyzed all of the tech crunch startup battle New York City pitching competitions from 2010 until 2017. And she put this video footage, transcribed, whatever, into academic meta-analysis stuff that I don't understand. And it came out with all of these different bits of research and analysis. And she found that there was no difference between the way male and female founders presented their ideas, but there was a significant difference in the questions that were asked of male and female founders. So male founders, 67% of male founders were asked what's called promotion questions. How are you going to double your market share? Where are you going to find your next 100 employees? How are you going to grow your ad spend or, or your presence or whatever stat they want them to, to grow and build? And 66% of women were asked what's called prevention questions. How are you going to protect your, market, your customers from the competition? What happens if your key employees leave? Those kinds of questions. And what was really interesting was that both male and female investors showed the same gender bias in the questions that they were asking. Very interesting. So I would have put this down to the investment world being dominated by white male investors. Well, that's, that's number three. Looking for like people to invest money in, just that 100%. bias that are like you 
yet that question thing that, that is really really interesting it is and, and the that same is point number three bias coming from both female and male questioner yeah that is really really interesting yeah. so point number three have preempted you Point number three, well, it's, it's exactly what you said. It, it's the fact that the fund management industry is pale, male, and stale. I mentioned Morningstar earlier. Three days before I ran my first funding focus event at the London Stock Exchange, which was pre-pandemic, November of 2019, three days before the event, Morningstar ran an article that said they had looked at the 1,500 closed-end investment companies in the UK, or was it open? either open-ended or closed? Anyway, they looked at 1,500 investment funds. And there were more funds run by men whose first name was David than funds that were run by women. <laughs> That's the other huge part. And when you drill that down into the world of venture capital, it's, it's even worse. There was a study published by the British Business Bank five years ago that found, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like 55% of venture capital firms in this study didn't even look at a presentation from a team that had a single woman in it. They're just not looking. And it's, you know, it's really interesting because I talk to a lot of venture capitalists and, and they all tell me, oh, it's deal flow. We're not seeing the deals. But I, someone's seeing the deals. If women are submitting 5% of the decks and only getting 1% of the money, someone's seeing a lot of deals. Yeah, David. Uh, three very, very solid reasons. But you've gone on the book to say, well, firstly, uh, there are two sections on how do you, what funding's available, how do you go about getting it? And the final section's talking about the longer term change to put this right. And let's flip those around, deal with them in the opposite order, because uh, okay. fundamental to my own value set is that everybody has a right to fulfill their potential. I agree 100%. Background, gender, colour, race, religion. Everybody has a fundamental right to be the best version of themselves possible. Yep. So clearly there is a big barrier in the way. Long term, what's going to happen? And it's interesting, actually, that my inspiration for the long term aspect is actually an historical figure, none other than Emmeline Pankhurst. Yeah, uh, One of the best pieces of literature that I read during my research phase, and I've read it twice, was her autobiography. The thing that hit me that caused me to rethink and put this bigger picture vision, longer term stuff into the book was that she founded the Women's Social and Political Union in 1903. She had been active in you know, fighting for women and children's rights for many years before, but she founded the WSPU in 1903. And it wasn't until 1928 that the Equal Franchise Act was passed. So that's 25 years. And I said, okay, let's go forward. From the time of writing, let's go forward 25 years. So it would have been 2047. And what does the world look like then? And I interviewed, I think, eight women for that section. Many of them were entrepreneurs. Some of them were very successful financiers and uh, inter interviewed them to get their perspective on what needed to change in the world. And that led to me setting out a, a number of different things under each of the social, political, economic, what should change. Then kind of my prediction on how this would make the world a fairer place. Close it out. And I know from our chat beforehand, you definitely wanted to speak about this. Close it out with a, 
a final chapter called, well, what am I doing about it? I said that there were three things. Two of them were very, very long-term things that I saw the potential for, but it was going to take a while to implement. One was to do with providing better financial education for everyone. You know, I'm all for keeping maths education until age 18 in the UK, but let's teach kids a little bit about financials so that they understand what a credit card is and things like that and don't get into terrible money problems. That's a different issue. But uh, so that's number one. Number two is a global micropayments system somehow that works seamlessly internationally. Some fintech will come up with it, but something where you can literally be a just a small supplier in a country anywhere in the world and buy or sell with a small supplier anywhere else in the world and be able to transact over mobile phones because not everybody has a bank account. And those are two long-term things. And then the third thing is something that I'm already working on and have announced publicly, which is that I'm in the process of launching a new vehicle to be listed on the London Stock Exchange. And that will be an investment fund that will invest in businesses where one of the founders is female and or non-white ethnicity, because Female founders face these issues. Men who aren't white also face a very uneven playing field. Tell me a bit more about that fund, David. You've you've announced it. It's going to be. A, I've announced. It. Yeah. So we've announced it. We made an announcement. One of the things that I keep hearing from female founders, from all founders, but particularly from female founders, is how they find the venture capital system to be a bit of a black hole. And it's like you go onto a website and sometimes you go onto their website and it's like, you know, XYZ Ventures and client login. And there's nothing else. You can't, there's no information or anything, no idea. Or founder, click this and submit your pitch deck. It's like stuff goes into a black hole. Other venture capital firms have great websites with lots of information, but it's still in the, at the end of the day, it's, Submit your pitch deck here. There's a little Google form to fill out with half a dozen questions. And we might come back to you, but we might not. In fact, we probably won't. And in reality, nobody does. And it's just like a black hole. And so one of the things that we talked about was the need for transparency. And so we decided when we were talking with our advisors about this, that transparency was a key issue and broadcasting our message was a key issue. And the two huge benefits that you, among others, that you get from being a a listed company the transparency is there. It's forced to be there by the stock exchange and the FCA rules. But also in terms of communicating a message, anytime we put out a press release, it goes out through a thing called the regulatory news service. Anyone who works in listed companies will know this, uh, but it goes out through the regulatory news and all of the newswires pick it up. Where it goes from there depends on whether it's newsworthy or not, but everyone will pick up on those important announcements. Why we decided to create a vehicle that's listed on the stock exchange. Brilliant. David, I can... Definitely see that education thing. And that, that's one of the reasons Grow CFO exists. We yeah. want to take finance people, heads of finance, financial controllers, heads of FPA, and help them become great finance leaders. Yeah, we also absolutely. Want to great new CFOs and turn them into great experienced CFOs. There's always something to learn. Absolutely. And I think we're trying to do that in such a way that we're available for everybody with no bias. And I've never actually looked at stats across our membership, but I would say that we're probably a 50-50 split men women. Yeah. And I'd yeah. probably say that we're we've got a very good split between white and not white. Excellent. I think that's fantastic. That just shows I, how great finance people are. I think it's encouraging <laughs> to actually see that the the finance community is yeah. actually pretty diverse. 
yes people of all backgrounds are succeeding yes. but throughout that one thing that we've realized is that a lot of folk come to us and saying i need to get involved in a fundraise as the lead finance person they haven't done anything like that before that they've got to suddenly get on with it or one of the barriers to getting the next job they haven't done anything like that before so they need to read this book yep i'm not sure if this is going out on video or out yeah. on video but i will yeah, great probably, okay so i'll probably choose this bit as the linkedin clip so we'll we'll get try yeah. and get that bit in to read funded female founders even if they're men but you know read it because you should know these things and yeah. read in particular read part 2 which takes you through the various bits and pieces of what to do and in the final chapter of part 2 goes through the pitching process and what a pitch deck should look like yeah and a couple of very very kind people comment on they felt that the description that i gave of the pitching process and what goes into a pitch deck uh, was the clearest they've ever heard in just in terms of you know no bs this is what you've got to do this is how you've got to do it this is how you got to approach it brilliant just in gross cfo we've got a fundraising simulator which will take you end to end through the whole process ah cool uh, which is great but oh, david what needs mm. to go into a pitch deck well I recommend a dozen slides. This part, I ha- actually have to go back and look. I'm, happily, I have, the, I have the book in front of me. So what I say is the typical decks that my team prepare for clients have 12 slides. A cover slide, just keep it simple. Name of the company, you know, nice picture. And then an elevator pitch in one or two sentences. What is it that you, that you can say out loud in 30 seconds or less? What is the gist of your business? You've got to capture their attention. Then you go into the team. A lot of people put the team at the back. In an early stage company, you're all about the team. You know, the, the idea could be anything. They could pivot the idea 10 times, but it's the team you're investing in. Then the problem, then the solution, then traction, which is all about how the market is reacting to what you're doing. Have you got any clients? Have you got any partnership agreements? Anything like that? Then you look at your target market. There's three acronyms that are used, TAM, SAM, and SOM. TAM is the total addressable market. So the entire potential market in the whole world. SAM is the serviceable addressable market, which is the element of TAM that you could reasonably go after. And SOM is the serviceable obtainable market, which is the share of SAM that your business could get. You might say that you're going to be a 10 restaurant chain. So you're going to be a regional business. You're not going to be competing nationally. You'll be focused more on the region and you know whatever the different factors are. But to, just to have that, sorry, that was target market. Then competition. So who else out there is doing what you're doing? And it's dangerous to go out and say, nobody does what we do because the investor is going to think, well, if nobody's done it, how do I know I'm going to make money doing it? I want to see a situation where there are other people in there. I don't mind you not being first to market. Earlier in the deck, you said, here's a problem. Here's how we're going to solve it. If there's really a problem, there'll be somebody else at least trying to solve part of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I was taught exactly. at a very early stage that if you're looking to, to start up a new business by yourself, go yeah. look for your niche, as the Americans put it. As they, One yes, of the way absolutely. That you know whether this niche is viable is go yeah. spend some time on Google or Amazon or wherever. Look, are there any books written about it? Is there anybody mm-hmm. already doing it? Mm-hmm. Yep. And is there a unique angle that you can put on it? Exactly. I get that if there's no competition there. I would be asking some very big questions. Yeah, so competition is a big one. Next up, and your listeners will love this, the financials. I like to keep it simple and graphical for what goes into the presentation. But when I'm working with clients, we have a model that we've designed where we can produce a five-year by-the-month 
P&L balance sheet cash flow with assumptions that you can edit and change and all of that. And I recommend having that level of detail, but don't put that level which of detail is, which into is it. one of the key things that we teach people how to do in the in, in the yeah. fundraising simulator. Then the investment ask and the exit plans. What are we looking for and what are we going to do with it? And then tell them what you're going to do with the money. Use of funds and then a thank you page. And that's a dozen pages. If you need to add one or two more in, that's fine. But one of the other things I tell people, and, and this is something I learned from our mutual friend, Dan Priestley, is that pitching is a process. And when you're going in for your first pitch, it's all about establishing whether there's a relationship or not. Does the chemistry work? You know, you'll go through the pitch deck, but it's really, uh, each of you is assessing the other, you know, fit. And I always say to entrepreneurs, you know, don't go in there being kind of, oh my God, I'm meeting a venture capital. It's so exciting. You know, go in there and because you're interviewing them just as much as they're interviewing. Oh, yes, absolutely. Can yeah. you, the owners of this business, work with these folk, the investors who are going to, in the next three to five years, be asking you some very difficult questions, take some tough decisions. Okay. They know that they're probably investing in you rather than the product. And there'll be some element of uh, pivoting and so on. But as this business model changes going forward, how supportive are these folk going to be? How easy are they going to be to talk to? Exactly. Chemistry. Absolutely. Exactly. I'm going through the pitch process, going back to where we started. All Mm -hmm. female team, got a brilliant team, first rate people on it, brilliant pitch deck, great idea, no reason why this shouldn't work, as any other team could come up with. What specifically should the woman in that team be worried about? The key thing that they should be thinking about is the right kind of investors for my business. And Again, it comes back to that. Don't just think about the money. There's lots of money available from lots of different places. I often feel that the venture capital industry in particular, one of the biggest culprit thing, you know, the one of, one of the other stats I talk about in my book, following the Alison Rose review being published, that was a government commission study on female entrepreneurship. Following that, one of the recommendations was that the treasury create a thing called the investing in women code. So when I was writing the book, I looked at the Investing in Women Code and I looked at all of the members that had signed up. And then I looked at all of the members of the British Venture Capital Association and 73% of them hadn't signed up. For many female founded businesses, unless you've got something that matches exactly with a specialty venture capital house, we are specialists in B2B fintech SaaS. Great. Okay. If you're B2B fintech SaaS, get in there. If you're not B2B fintech SaaS, don't even waste your time. But look at the firms and try and find the ones that express interest in supporting female founders. Look at events for female founders. I'm going to one this evening by an organization that I only came across maybe three months ago. It's called Female Founders Rise. Check them out. The, The woman behind that is a real dynamo and she's building something quite exciting. And I'm speaking in an event this evening in the city about that. Look out for events like that, where you can then get in and network into people. The biggest thing, if you're going to go for funding is, you know, you can approach people cold. It's just like cold calling. You never know when you're going to hit. You might just sit there and not even not get get rejections and no's, just you, you hear nothing. But the best way, if you're looking for funding, is to find out who the right investor for you is and then figure out how to get an introduction to them. Does it help to be well networked with teams like your own who have already been successful? Unquestionably, it helps to be networked with teams. It helps to be networked with maybe not anybody, but it it helps to be networked with people because you never know where all of a sudden, oh yeah, my 
flatmate's mother is ex-wife of, you know, so-and-so that I wanted to know and, and meet and, and whatever. And, you know, you just never know. So 100% getting into networks of teams and things like that is beneficial. Would you say, David, there are any particular industries or geographies where it is harder to get investment than others? The stats in the United States are a little better than they are here. Uh, historically, female founders in the US have had between two and a half and three percent. It's never broken through three. And last year it fell to 2.0. So it's a little better. Other stats that I read, a very interesting one from a company that was a crowdfunding platform in Australia. That industry was still fairly young. I think there were only two or three crowdfunding sites, but they found that their biggest crowdfunding overfunding rounds were of companies that were led by women. They felt that they had a much better communication and brand outreach, and it was much more focused around sustainability and community and all of that. Just a fascinating difference. And You've actually preempted my next question there. I, I was <laughs> going to say, are there, of all of these various different ways you can raise funds, any difference in the ones that you should be going for, such as in something that's digital, like crowdfunding? Crowdfunding is a, crowdfunding. And, and those traditional places. Crowdfunding is great. Anybody who's interested in crowdfunding, if, if, if for a UK listener, uh, you want to look at Cedars and you want to look at Crowdcube. Those are the two equity funding sites in other countries around the world. Just Google equity crowdfunding and you'll get whatever the local one is. Crowdfunding is a very interesting thing because you come up with a story and then you pitch it out to a crowd, but it's not that easy. There's a whole bunch of processes you got to go through. But crowdfunding, if you've got something that people can generally understand, it's a really good thing to do. If you've got something that's quite technical, crowdfunding's not that great. Yeah. It's all about making sure you've got a tribe behind you, isn't it? Exactly. So you can engage, exactly. engage a tribe of people with the right outlook. Yeah then that, that's going to work. Definitely. And then, you know, there are lots of sites that do debt crowdfunding as well. And again, you know, you can just Google them to get whatever the ones are near you. Funding is definitely an option. And then, you know, well, there's angels are wealthy individuals who are investing their own money. They're typically part of a syndicate. So they'll team up with a bunch of other angels who have a common set of interests or whatever. And, uh, you know, they'll agree what they're going to look at and invest in. And the syndicates will will make investment decisions based on how they get pitched and, and what they're interested in. For angels, I mean, some angels are incredibly wealthy. I think for most angels, you're looking at individual investments of up to six figures, but not often more than six figures, unless you get lucky with a, with a particularly wealthy one. So on an individual basis, you might have three or four angels pitch together to make an investment. But yeah, I wouldn't expect to see an angel round more than, I don't know, 250, 300. Might be enough and to then, get started, but it's never going to be the one that helps you uh, go exactly. and uh, change the world. The thing is with crowdfunding, not all crowdfunding, but a lot of crowdfunding, but definitely angel who you're dealing with as your investors, that's their money. Yeah. When you then go on to venture capital and private equity, the people you're dealing with are fund managers who have raised money from, you know, university endowment funds, pension funds, investment banks, whatever, and are investing it on their behalf. That's a big shift because now you're dealing specifically with that fund manager and they've got a very clear mandate that's been agreed with their investors. And if you fit their mandate, happy days and very best of luck to you. And if you don't fit their mandate, 
Don't even bother trying. David, through all this process, we've been talking particularly about the founder, but how valuable to the process is having a really strong CFO on board. Completely invaluable. I mean, you cannot do this alone. You also need strong sales and marketing and you need strong operations in your business. But I know this is a CFO targeted audience. So the role that the CFO plays is critical, not just in terms of the numbers, but it's a lot of founders are very visionary people. They're really out there and the investor is looking to the CFO to be the person who can occasionally reach up and pull the founder back to earth and has his or her own feet firmly planted on earth. And it's, you know, it's a really good counterbalance where you've got that visionary founder and a solid CFO so that the the investor knows that the numbers they're getting are going to be good. They're going to be the truth. In your research, has the gender of the CFO made much of a difference? Or isn't that? In all honesty, I've not researched that aspect of it. I've yeah. been, my, my research has all been focused around founders. What I will say, and it's interesting, I mean, I qualified a long time ago in 1987 in Canada. And I remember the year I qualified the, our, it was called CA Magazine, very creative title. On the front cover, the gold, silver, and bronze medals in the national final exams went to three women for the first time. I remember at the time thinking, that's really cool. A similar period. Not- I remember seeing similar results. And yeah. and I, yeah. actually, I think if I, if I was looking back, and I, I did a, a, quite a number of years, I actually marked mock professional exams for a local oh, wow. house. And okay. I could genuinely say that right from that point, some of the brighter, stronger candidates coming through that qualification process were women. And I, mm, I think that, that's maintained right to this day. Yes, I agree. That's what makes me proud to be part of this profession because it does have that diversity and it has had it ingrained for a long time. David, you're starting the new fund. When's it likely to be up and running? When are you likely to be taking your first pitch deck? Oh, Kevin, how long's a piece of string? We will have a fund. It might not yet be the final listed version. We are looking at doing a private placement. I probably can't say anything more. My lawyer is going to get mad at me. But we are looking at doing a a small pre-IPO private placing just to get a small fund away so that we can start making some investments. We've spoken with a lot of very big investment names. I probably shouldn't repeat them here, but very, very well-known institutions. And they've all said they love it, but none of them has written a check. So if we can say, you know, we've gone out and done this and we've raised X and we've invested in Y companies and here's what's been achieved and here's some, you know, here's things that have already been realized. Here's evidence that what we've been telling you we can do, we can do. It's it's like all things in a a startup. It takes a huge amount of energy to get that stone rolling, get it at the top of the hill. But once you get there and you just push it off. Momentum takes over. The success breeds more success. Yeah. In my vision, this should be a billion pound plus fund. There's certainly enough companies that would be qualified for us to invest in. Billion pounds. I like your thinking. (laughs) So watch this space. Absolutely. So if there's anybody that's listening to this, David, that think they've got a brilliant pitch deck, that think would would light your fire and come from a, a team with the right makeup of founders would they be too early to be dropping you a line or would you would you help direct them somewhere if you couldn't immediately do anything ask them to send it 
to Taryn, T-A-R-Y-N, at funding-focus.com. Right. So that's Taryn, T-A-R-Y-N, at funding-focus.com. And we'll put that in the show notes. David, this is really, really exciting. I knew this would be a great conversation. <laughs> and I don't know, got in hold of you originally on our other podcast, The Next 100 Days, because you, gosh, I found an accountant who's written a book. It'd be an interesting interview. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the fourth time we've chatted together. Gosh, yep. I can't wait to see what's next in your world, because I'm sure in another 12 or 18 months, there'll be a really good reason to have you back on the podcast. I would welcome the opportunity. David, thank you for being this week's guest on The Grow CFO Show. My pleasure, Kevin. Thank you.